This is the Digital Savage Experience Podcast, hosted by Roman Prokopchuk, bringing you all things digital marketing, tech, business, and motivation. What's stopping you from becoming relentless in all aspects of life? Are you ready to become a digital savage? Let's get into today's episode. Hey everyone, this is Roman Prokopchuk and this is the Digital Savage Experience Podcast. So I can't believe I made it to episode 100 and my wife finally agreed to uh, come on. So my wife is Lindsay Prokopchuk, sometimes a royal pain in the butt, but I still love her though. She's been in retail management for most of her professional career and she's pivoting to education also in school. So finally, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for inviting me into this part of the house to have me onto your podcast. Yeah, I've invited you numerous times, I believe episode one, and it took to episode 100 for you to finally jump on. (laughs) I was waiting until you got all the fancy equipment first. Yeah, all right. But anyway, so first question, tell me about your journey. Where did you get started? How did you get to where you are now? So in terms of my career, I'm uh, currently a retail professional, a retail management professional, and I have been doing retail most of my, most of my life. And I kind of fell into it. Um, You know, I did the, the college thing that wasn't quite for me at that point in my life right out of high school uh, against my parents will and advice but I did go to school I went to UNLV for criminal justice and being out in Las Vegas at 18 years old was definitely more of a party scene than any sort of a place to harbor um, any sort of educational you know background for me at least and then I came to Middlesex County College and studied radiography and the medical field wasn't really what I was wanting to do with the rest of my life either, especially in radiography. So I fell into retail as, as most people do and you know worked at places like Kohl's and worked my way up a little bit there. And I had a lot of people just invest in me and believe in me and Honestly, I was in the right place at the right time for most of that time until I was finally in the position where I could prove myself to people and and had people take big chances on me. So I met Roman when I was in retail, but in the cosmetics industry. And I was looking to transfer out of that as much as I loved cosmetics and, and doing makeup artistry. There wasn't a real set path for me in that. So I wanted to get more into the retail management side of it. So I had one of my um, previous bosses from Lord & Taylor reach out to me and and say that they were working for this company, Backrack Menswear, that was um, pretty big quite a a while ago and they were picking back up again and they were opening brand new stores and they took a chance on me and brought me in as their assistant manager. And into a store that wasn't even opened yet, wasn't built, wasn't anything. So they offered me this position for a store that was nothing other than um, really a signed lease at the time. 
and I was training in other stores and kind of all over the place. And I think by the time my store officially opened, I had already been in three or four other stores, you know, stocked them, merchandised them from the ground up, helped train those employees. And by the time my store was finally up and open, I think I was only really in there for three or four weeks before I got offered to run the Atlanta Metro Market. And that's really what launched my career. So I moved down to Atlanta for about nine months and ran three stores down there before I realized that my darling sweet boyfriend at the time, um, now husband, couldn't quite find a job down there that would, you know, really pay him anything near what he made up here because of the, the difference in economy and everything. So I was starting to look at opportunities to come back up to the East Coast and it just worked better with our families both being up here anyway. So I, right place at the right time, ended up with uh, Invicta Watch Company who actually had a store right above mine in one of the malls that I was working at and got hooked up with them and on a leap of faith you know I was offered and again another position to run a few stores for them up here in New Jersey stores that weren't opened yet didn't exist yet and because they were an established company but not established in brick and mortar the offer that I was offered to run these three stores as a GM with the you know potential of being a, an area manager wasn't available until the stores were physically opened here in New Jersey but in order for them to be opened I needed to know what I was doing so I gave up my salary and, and everything that I was making and had earned and started with Invicta at $14 an hour and um did that for three or four months until it was time to come back up to New Jersey. And and I struggled financially with that, especially coming from my previous salary and, you know, having to pay all of the bills and everything associated with that. But made my way back up here to New Jersey, opened those stores, um, three stores onto four stores to five to six. And at that time, the company was getting ready to open in World Trade Center, um, Queens, and really branch into the New York market. And it was a wild ride. I definitely enjoyed it, but it, it, the lifestyle-wise, it didn't quite agree with, um, you know, where where I was at in my life at this point. We were married, and I think I only really spent one or two nights a week at home. So I got involved with Lovesack, who is a growing modular furniture company. They make the world's largest bean bags and the modular couches. And I took a step down in position to be a general manager at a store about an hour away from our house. And I was there for a little over two years, learned a lot about the company, about myself, but especially what I wanted to do with the rest of my life as far as how I wanted to spend my time um, and how I wanted to invest in myself and my family. So. The decision was made uh, pretty early on in our marriage to start a family in terms of having children. And I knew that for me and for us, retail was something that was going to definitely limit that in terms of 
really the scheduling requirements and everything that went into retail and, you know, especially being in that upper management position, you, you don't have a lot of flexibility. I always thought that the higher you went, you would have a lot of flexibility in your schedule and making your own hours and you really didn't. Uh, and especially that drive. So we got off to a rocky start with our family planning, which I'm sure we'll touch upon a little bit later, but I was looking to exit retail and get into teaching. Um, I spent a few years really deciding if going back to school is what I wanted and if getting into the education field was what I wanted. And after constantly coming back to the yes over and over again, I knew that that was the right decision for me. So looking for something closer to home that would allow me to go to school to start our family, what that <laughs> entailed, and be able to um, work kind of all at the same time. So I ended up at Pottery Barn Kids, where I currently am, and I took another step down in position and pay, but it allowed me to do those things. It allowed me to go to school full-time, or I'm still going to school full-time. I'm about a year and a half in. It allowed me to not just go to school, but really push myself. Um, going back to school in your 30s and paying for it completely out of pocket. I didn't just wanna to go to school and get decent grades. I wanted to go to school and push myself. Even though it's community college, um, I wanted to be able to transfer to you know, a, another school with that 4.0 grade point average, something that I dreamed of having and, and pushed myself to get and to make it onto the national honor roll and very proud of myself for getting there. It's definitely tough, even at a community college. Um, nobody should ever not community colleges. They definitely push you just as hard. So in terms of my career, that's where I'm at. Um, in retail, but in school full-time and transitioning into the educational field. And I'd like to focus on elementary education and special education. Well, um, let's get into uh, the family aspect of it since that's been a um, long road so far with a lot of stuff going on all over the place. It's been uh, one of the uh, most challenging parts of our relationship. So uh, let's get into that a little bit. Well, I'm glad to hear that family planning has been one of the most challenging parts of our relationship and not me necessarily. So that's, I guess, a... Well, I was trying to be nice. But... Really? So, like I said, we decided to start a family very early on. I've loved kids and have dreamed of being a mother for as long as I can remember. And seeing Roman with kids, it was very clear from very early on that he would be an amazing father. So we um, tried right away to have children and you know after i don't know a year year and a half maybe year three we said this this isn't working something's not right here and and that was a hard decision to kind of say out loud or a hard realization really to say out loud because yeah, there's just a few simple steps that go into making a baby um and they weren't working for us so we reached out, got professional help, went to fertility specialists, and were given a less than 1% chance of being able to naturally conceive. So I have a condition called PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome, which my body just doesn't quite cooperate. Um, I it, it just doesn't cooperate. 
So we started with our fertility specialist and we went into um, the route of IUIs, which is taking some pretty nasty fertility drugs. All of the, the fertility drugs are uncomfortable. You know, you've got to give yourself needles in the stomach, in the upper part of your rear end, and none of them feel great. None of them are great to have to do in public at work or any place that you are really, but we tried a few rounds of IUIs and those were unsuccessful. And, you know, it was already a hard step to, I guess, face the fact that you've got to go to a fertility specialist. You know, you're already upset with your body that it's not working the way it's supposed to. I think that we still hadn't even told our families at that point that we were seeking help. Um, I don't think many friends knew. We were still pretty embarrassed. I was embarrassed, I was ashamed. So we really kept it quiet. Um, and I was really praying that IUIs would work for us. I think mostly because I was scared to death of the IVF process because of the needles that it involved and, and the cost associated with it. So we moved from IUI into IVF and our doctor recommended that the best course of action for IVF was actually IVF with ICSI, which is um, intracellular semen injection. And that is isolating the best egg and isolating the best sperm and actually injecting that with a needle. So that's what we did. So the egg retrieval process, which was um, very costly, even with insurance, was pretty excruciating. Daily, you've got to do anywhere from, you know, four to six needles worth of medicine um, right into your stomach, constantly going in for daily monitoring, which requires blood work and ultrasound. So it takes a lot out of your schedule. It's mentally exhausting. It's physically exhausting. The, the drugs definitely take a toll on you. My doctors were especially, you know, they, they really wanted to try and produce as many eggs for retrieval as possible, knowing that our insurance only covered one round. So by the time it came to the egg retrieval part, I was so swollen. It looked like I was almost four months pregnant. It was very uncomfortable. You know, in order to get your body to do these things, like produce all of these eggs, which is unnatural, you, you've you got to stimulate your body and, and give it a lot of drugs and a lot of hormones. And it was to the point where, you know, I walked in the day for the egg retrieval surgery and, and I could barely walk on my own. It was, it was very painful. So the bright side of that was that we did get 27 eggs, which was a great amount. We did opt to do the the PGS testing on it, which you know just checks for any any issues genetically, which is not covered by insurance, by the way. But you know, in the process of that, you want to get to that five day waiting period and then do your testing, and then things get frozen, um, cryogenically frozen. So after all was said and done, from those twenty seven eggs that were retrieved, we did have fifteen that made it to so after all was said and done we did have 11 fertilized embryos that made it to cryo we did know the sex of all of them those are some of the things that the testing comes back so we had six girl embryos and five boy embryos 
So we took a tiny break and then started the transfer process, which is where they then go and implant the embryos into me. Um, so that's another round of drugs, another round of monitoring. And after all was said and done, that was unsuccessful. So my body, um, you know, everything looks great at the time of transfer leading up to transfer. And then it all kind of falls apart after that. So my doctor did a few surgeries on me the first year to try and make the transfer work. We, we found out some additional things with biopsies and everything else. And this last transfer that we did this past December of 2018, uh, we thought for sure that that would be it, that that would be the one. We finally got the times right and the medicine right on everything. And we were so very excited. We had our final test on December 26th to go in and determine if this was successful. And we took a test at home on December 25th, Christmas day, and it came back unsuccessful. It came back negative. So that was um, pretty hard to stomach because the year prior we, I, we miscarried on Christmas day. Um, and that was from one of our IUIs and that was extremely painful. That was very early on in our process, but this kind of rehashed all of those feelings. And I will say the one positive part about, well, not positive, but the one, you know, really saving grace to getting that terrible news on Christmas day was the, the two little people that we had with us that kind of helped to ease that pain a little bit. But in terms of where we are at right now in our fertility process, we did decide to take a little bit of a break, um, get ourselves back in shape a little bit. So going to the gym more, eating better, just working on our mental clarity and trying to relieve the stressors in our life, which is just funny at this point because we've got more stress, I think, than we've had in, in quite some time, but just trying to work on, on any of those little things and um, if all goes well, I, I don't want to rush it, so I'll definitely wait until we're both ready, but if all goes well, I would like to do another transfer closer to the end of this year um, and, and fingers crossed that it will work. Well, you mentioned two little people. So after the whole, I mean, you didn't mention how many miscarriages we have and, you know, how many embryos we've uh, already implanted. But at a certain point, we made the decision to possibly go the route in terms of adoption and mainly currently foster to adopt. So on several episodes, I've already mentioned that wife and I are foster parents and some of the stuff you know struggles the process the system the boys we had with us for a year that you know two two months ago ended up you know being reunified and dealing with that so uh go into that how we kind of made the decision what that was like some of the training that's like not necessarily what the actual process is because I feel like uh it's sugar-coated for the training, and then it's like scared straight right after. Not necessarily for the kids, but the process dealing with all the departments, some of the uncooperative or unhelpful people, and from that sense. Yeah, I think sugar-coated to scared straight is a pretty accurate 
description of it. So I actually remember walking out of our pride training, which is what they call it. Well, really our orientation for pride training, which is what they call the foster parent training. But Roman and I walked out and, and again, didn't tell family what we were doing, but walked out and I, I sent a text message to my mom and I think it said something like, you know, Roman and I decided to be foster parents. I don't know if you guys are going to agree with it, but this is what we, we are planning on doing. And I really hope you support it. Okay, thanks. Bye. And I think I put my phone on airplane mode because I was afraid of the response that I would get. Not that, you know, our families are not supportive as, at all, but, you know, at this point now in the process, a lot of our family has come to us and said they were afraid for us to get involved in this process because of the pain and agony that we've felt um, up until this point now with, with the loss of our boys. So, but we had full support of our families. We still do. They've taken such a hands-on approach and have really treated all of the kids that have come into our home like they were our own biological children, which is really the best thing anyone could ever give either one of us. So you start by showing interest so you start by going online and showing interest that you want to become a foster parent and then you have someone reach out to you they invite you to an orientation and the orientation i feel like they they kind of give you some of the real details you know and that kind of weeds out the people who had no idea what foster care was really about versus the people that would still make it back for phase two so we were not scared away at that point and decided to move forward with it, which is when we started our pride training, which is about, I think it was about 50 hours worth of training. And I remember saying to Roman leading up to it, you know, cause I think it was twice a week for three or four hours per training at night. And I said to him, I don't understand when we have to take these parenting classes. You know, there's parents out there that are getting their kids taken away. We love kids, we can take care of them. Why do we have to go to these parenting classes? This is silly. And, you know, not even halfway through the very first class, you understand that it's not parenting classes. It's teaching you about the system, teaching you about the process teaching you about a lot of the emotions and feelings that these kids are coming to you with and really a lot of the psychology behind a lot of the things that they're thinking and feeling you know why a child can be removed from their parent who is abusing or neglecting them and still not want to leave that situation or their parent which is something that i couldn't understand going into it but after those classes and after experiencing it firsthand I understand and I see the value behind those classes. But the the downside of it is you and you know before I get to the next part so DCPNP which was formerly DIFUS um they did change the name because DIFUS kind of got a bad rap so it's now DCPNP which is the Department of Child Protection and Permanency. DCPNP runs like any other business in terms of I think people work there because they genuinely want to and they want to make a difference and they want to make a change but I do wholeheartedly believe that people at some point do get burnt out and do have you know grievances or whatever it is because we've come across some amazing workers amazing people within the division, our division, 
and then some people who have made it really tough for us and have really made us question numerous times if we would continue to be foster parents. And in this pride training, you hear about how much support you have and how many resources you have and how, you know, it's going to be rainbows and butterflies. And, and it's not, it's not always that. Um, so you've definitely got to be strong and you've got to be ready for, you know, to roll with the punches because they come and they come hard and, and it's definitely tough. So we made it through pride training and the next big step was getting your home licensed. So during pride training, you've got resource workers coming in and out of your house, doing interviews one-on-one. -on -one. They would interview Roman without me there and then vice versa. And you had to get statements from neighbors and jobs and just all sorts of references and, and all sorts of stuff. And go through your financial background. I swear they required more financial background from us than when we bought our home uh, because you have to be able to support these children before that stipend comes in, which um, that, that money that they give you, especially for us never having children before, you know, we looked at that, that stipend and we said, wow, that's, that's kind of a lot of money that you get. And then after two weeks of having <laughs> kids in your home and that money is long gone, you say, wow, that, that money went quick and, and you find yourself definitely digging deep into your own pockets. But that's why they have to do the financial background as well as a criminal background. So once you pass all of that, the very final step is getting your, your home inspected. So they come in and make sure that you've got locks on all of your doors and your cabinets and there's no you know, alcohol in the home or children can get to all of your medicine, even over the counter is locked up. All of your smoke detectors have batteries in them. They're in the right places in the home. Um, never knew a carbon monoxide detector had to be on the wall, not the ceiling. So things like that, um, you know, making sure that the pool gate was self-closing and the latch was on the right side. And all of these things, you know, people were getting turned down at their home studies because their windows weren't the proper height from the floor. And again, you kind of scratch your head and you think, you know, there's people who are getting their children taken away for abuse and neglect and you care about my windows. Um, so it's definitely a very stressful and trying process. So we were finally licensed. Um, our home study was in March of 2018. And we got a text message from our resource worker, May, May 28th, 29th, that we were officially licensed. We got a phone call the very next day asking if we wanted to take a sibling set, two girls, three and four years old. And we said, we definitely cannot take siblings. We both work full time. Um, I'm in school full time. I'm planning our vow renewal, which is, you know, essentially a wedding in itself, the way we were planning it. And so there is absolutely no way we can take siblings. So they called us back later on the day so that, you know, the siblings didn't end up being removed from their, their parent, but they did have another sibling set and they they told us about both boys and the very little medical history that they had on them the why they were removed the boys were 
taken from their mother two weeks prior to us receiving this phone call and they ended up at a foster home in another county about an hour away but that foster parent no longer could care for them so they now needed a new place to go and, and the reason that we were called so late in the day on a thursday is that they had cycled through their entire list of homes in our county that would take the two of them together to keep the siblings together. So they always try and keep siblings together, you know, by any means possible. So they knew that we were very against taking siblings. So they cycled through all of the details of these two boys and basically said, which one do you want? Um, so I put them on hold for a second and Roman was right there next to me. And I said to him, can we really take siblings right now? And he shook his head and said, absolutely not. And I shook my head yes <laughs> in agreeance. And I said, can we really be the reason why these boys get separated? And he shook his head and said, absolutely not. So I unmute my phone and I said, okay, <laughs> like that. I said, okay. He said, I, I don't have daycare sorted out. I don't have, you know, anything sorted out. I've only got one bed in the house right now. We have nothing. And they said, okay, well, you know, think about it overnight, try and see what you can do in terms of finding a daycare and we'll talk at some point tomorrow. I said, okay. So we hung the phone up and we said, we'll give this a shot. Let's see if we can find a daycare that we can get these kids into because obviously we both have to return to work tomorrow. And we did, we looked at a daycare Friday morning that we liked at Montessori school, went to the store, bought a new bed, bought a mattress, another car seat, um, not a car seat, a stroller, and a few of the things that we think we might need, providing we should give the official thumbs up on taking these two boys. And when the phone rang later in the day, they said, okay, we're about an hour away from your house with the kids. We said, oh, okay, great. So that, that yes was a yes, whether we had wanted it or not at that point. So I remember feeling nervous, not, not nervous to be, you know, a mom or I don't really know where the nerves came from, but definitely nervous. Just, it was just a different situation. Um, and the, the van pulled up and the caseworker got out and the kids were, amazing they were so cute so lovable right off the bat hugs kisses these big floppy heads full of curls i mean came into the house we had some toys set up for them and and it felt like a fit right away they were amazing we fed them some lunch and then decided to go to walmart and get some extra things for them and that's where it all fell apart <laughs> The, so the kids were a few weeks short of three years old and then 16 months old. So we had our honeymoon period for the first hour that they were with us and everything fell apart after that. Screaming and yelling and kicking and in public, you're not my mom, get away from me. I had an almost three-year-old telling me that he was going to kick my ass. Um, you know, and you're in Walmart or any place in public and you have this little you know, Puerto Rican child who is obviously a different skin tone from us yelling at you saying, you're not my mother, get away from me. And obviously heads are going to turn and look at you. So that was definitely interesting. Um, but you know, the, the first few weeks were tough with us. We couldn't really go anywhere in public. 
because of the three-year-old's behavior. Um, the 16-month-old was fine. He was a baby. You know, he just wanted to be held and fed, and then that was really it. But the three-year-old and I definitely butt heads, and I remember telling a few people, I, I don't know if this is going to work. I remember crying myself to sleep almost every single day, just being so depressed. You know, I just wanted to be a mom and wanted this family so badly. And here I was with these two children in my house and I'm seeing my husband bond with them and love them. And here I was thinking that I had just made the biggest mistake of my life. And what kind of person was I to call the caseworker and for them to, you know, come and take these kids away because this just was not working for us. I mean, Roman and I would do everything together. If we needed gas in a car, we would both get in a car and, and go do that together. And here we were and one of us couldn't leave the house because we had to stay with the kids. And we, um, you know, got the house ready and everything to celebrate the almost three-year-old's birthday party. And he honestly woke up a week before his third birthday and I think a switch flipped and he he started to behave a little better. I think he was understanding where he was a little better and our rules and our love and knowing that he was safe and it took a lot of us understanding too that here was this toddler but this baby. I mean, he's really just this baby and he was taken from his mom and put in this strange home and taken away from there two weeks later and put in another strange home and there you know his behaviors and actions were definitely justified they were just hard they were really hard to deal with and manage but they went away and the three-year-old and i had a bond like no other um our personalities matched he was wild and crazy and loud and <laughs> A savage like my husband calls me and you know my husband and the 16 month old their personalities matched just quiet and reserved um and it was great it was it was absolutely wonderful and those boys completed our family we heard initially that their case would probably move towards adoption which we later found out was really just something that we were told to take the boys because I knew that we were foster to adopt. And, you know, the, the caseworker made it apparent early on in their case that they would most likely be reunified. And that was a roller coaster from very early on. I remember, so the kids were officially placed with us June 1st. As of August, we heard that there was a family member that came forward that was being looked into and the day before they were supposed to go move in with that family member, she backed out. So we thought we were going to lose the kids in August. And then we heard the kids would definitely be reunified by Christmas and, you know, not knowing how we were going to manage losing the kids near Christmas. And then at the last minute going out and buying Christmas presents because they were still with us. And then the kids would definitely be gone by February and then February, March, April, um, all passed. And once the overnight visits had started in early April, we knew that that was kind of it. Once the overnight visits start with a biological parent, you know that things are really wrapping up and those children are, are getting ready to be reunified. So it, it happened, you know, and our worst fear was happening. And being a foster parent and the purpose of DCPNP, the primary goal is always reunification. So DCPNP works 
with the biological parent or parents to help rehabilitate them. They help them get on their feet in terms of job, um, if there's any drug treatment or mental health treatments, housing, anything. They provide anything to the parents and really help them get on their feet and we support that. We had met the children's biological mother um, in, in August and built a relationship with her and you know spent christmas eve with her spent the children's birthdays with her would go and pick her up from her house and drive her all over you know text message had that type of relationship with her and wanted to have that relationship knowing that the boys would be reunified so that we could continue to be a resource for mom once they were there and it was definitely a double-edged sword because the more we got to know mom you know, we, we felt comfortable at first with the boys going back. And then the more that we got to know her and the more that we would get to talk to her and, and be around her, we would see some major red flags and we would report those red flags back to the caseworker. And they were definitely brushed under the table because they knew that we were foster to adopt. And they knew that we would absolutely adopt these children in a heartbeat. So we felt like our hands were tied. We saw, like I said, major red flags in the case and things that we genuinely feared for the children's safety when they went back. And none of it was noted, none of it was mentioned, none of it was discussed with mom. Um, and the children went back and it was Memorial Day weekend. So, you know, once those overnight visits had started, we knew that we were on borrowed time and we had our vow renewal that I was planning from March of the previous year. Our vow renewal was May 19th. That was our five-year anniversary. Well, May 17th was our five-year anniversary. May 19th was our vow renewal. And we just kept praying and praying that these boys would just be here for our vow renewal. And the closer the time got to there, the chances of being reunified were greater and greater. And I remember saying to Rome and I said, I think the boys are still going to be with us for the vow renewal. I think this is, you know, God just allowing them to be with us to celebrate um, and kind of everybody's last goodbye to them. You know, everybody that we know and love traveled from near and far to be at our vow renewal. The people that, you know, spent the most time, made the biggest influence in the children's lives and our lives. They were there. And we said, we just have to hold on until then. We just need the kids to still be with us until then. And they were. And it was the most amazing day for so many reasons, but especially because of that, you know, because our babies, our kids, they were with us on that day. And that was a Sunday. And the following Monday, they had their overnight visit with their mom. They came back to us on a Wednesday. That Friday, we took them down to the beach, to the arcade and um, put them on some rides and everything else. And we're having such a great time. Took the kids in the water and we took a little family train ride on one of the choo-choo trains. And I remember grabbing my phone and taking a selfie of Roman and I, and I mean, we were grinning ear to ear. You know, our kids were still with us. We were happy. It was a great day. I was off for the weekend. We decided to walk down to the boardwalk and grab a bite to eat. And, um, ordered food for the kids, a bunch of seafood for us, drinks for us. 
Roman got up to take the three-year-old to the bathroom and I got an email on my phone from the caseworker and the subject was reunification and and I opened it and, and my heart sunk <laughs> and I opened it and it, it just said, you know, Lindsay, please let me know your cell phone number so I can talk to you about reunification. And I texted her my cell phone number and was praying that Roman would just make it back to the table before she had called. And, you know, the phone rang, he sat down as the phone was ringing and I kind of mouthed out to him. I said, it's, it's happening. It's going to be Tuesday. It's happening. It's going to be Tuesday. And, and that's what the case, you know, Monday was a holiday. And just like that, the caseworker said, okay, reunification is on schedule for Tuesday. Have the kids' stuff packed up. We'll get the kids on Tuesday. If we can't get their stuff then, we'll be there later in the week. And we'll talk to you then. And, and that was it. It was a 30-second phone call. And our entire life kind of came crashing down. And I think we were stunned at first. And then, thank goodness it was a sunny day and we both had sunglasses on because we could not stop sobbing. Um, so I reached out my phone again and I, you know, a few minutes later and I took a, another picture of us and that was actually shared to social media. And, and that was when we, you know, kind of announced to people that our babies were leaving on Tuesday. And it, it took me a while to go back and look at those pictures, but it was one hour, one hour from when he and I had taken that selfie on the train together to when we had taken that second and how one hour of time completely changed our lives to when we were so happy and so grateful and had everything together and had our kids to when we knew it was all over. So those next few days were especially rough. Um, it's kind of like dealing with somebody who, who you know you're going to lose, you know, you're almost facing death, not, not to sound morbid and not to I don't know. I don't know how to make it sound, but we were losing our babies. So we, we adopted a no rules policy. The kids loved it. There was no bedtime. There was no nap time. There were no rules as far as food or toys or activities that we did. I mean, they got to do whatever they wanted to do for 72 hours because we, we didn't want to tell them no to anything. All we wanted to do was enjoy our time with them. Um, soak up as much of that as we still could. Um, at this point, there were some things that were said, you know, in confidentiality to the caseworker. A lot of those red flags that we had brought up that were misconstrued um, to Biomom um, and, and that confidentiality was breached. So at this point, we no longer had a relationship with Biomom. And we knew that once the kids got reunified, we would no longer have a relationship with them, even though mom had promised that we would. So I think that was especially tough, too knowing that, you know, these, these kids would be gone forever. Um, and that would be it. So like I said, the last few days were especially rough. We had some people come and see them and, and say their goodbyes. Um, the three-year-old, you know, we were saying goodbye to my parents in, in person, my mom and stepdad and you know, everybody got teary eyed and the three-year-old said, mama, why is everybody so sad? And it's, you know, we, we tried to explain to them that their mom was feeling better and, you know, their mommy was sick and she was feeling better and that they're not going to live with mama and daddy anymore. And, you know, even in grabbing suitcases and things to pack their stuff up and the three-year-old would grab my purse and say, okay, mom, it's, it's time to pack your, your backpack, your pack pack, you would call it. And having to explain to him, no, we're not, 
we're not coming with you. And say, yeah, we're, we're all going to live together. Mom and mama and daddy and, you know, his younger brother and us. And that broke our heart. I mean, he thought that when they went back, they were coming with us. So that was especially hard for us. Um, and we knew for sure that we would need to take a break after that. So the boys have been gone this coming Tuesday will be 10 weeks that they have been gone. Um, in that time period, we've taken several respite placements and emergency placements. We actually had one come today. So I've got two little ones sleeping upstairs right now, but it's different. Um, respite is definitely different and, and we are definitely different at this point now. Um, you know, in the middle of having these two boys, we took a nine month old and a four year old as well for a, an emergency placement for a long weekend. And these emergency placements walk into your house and you instantly care for them. But it's it's different. Um, you don't you don't not love them, but you know that your primary job is to take care of them and, and you have this love for them immediately. But I don't know, maybe you can chime in. It's just it's kind of hard to explain. I mean, you immediately care and and do have this love and this feeling but it's i think it's different than what you have with you know a placement of almost a year so well you know that they're leaving and it's short term it's either emergency or helping out another foster parent or something went wrong with reunification whereas with the uh you know the boys that we had for almost a year we were told one thing and then it transpired a different way. So having, you know, kids, caring for anything for a year, you obviously develop a bond. And um, when that bond gets broken, obviously it's part of kind of your emotional construct. So even though it's been 10 weeks, it still, you know, feels like they just left an hour ago, at least for me. Um, and I mean, obviously it's been hard. It's hard to, um, you don't necessarily try to block it out, but when you watch a video or um, look at a picture, it definitely hits you right away. So it's uh, one of those things, I think um, your psyche and your kind of mind try to shelter you from pain and kind of sugarcoat it, if you will, and then you just break through it and it all pours out right again. So at least for me, that's how it is. Um, looking at pictures, I get super sad. Watching videos, um, I, she hasn't mentioned it yet, but uh, we try to write to them every day and tell them how we feel or what we did on that day a year ago. Um, so that's been kind of helping and reminiscing and watching videos together and stuff. It's definitely difficult when um, children call you mom and dad and uh they end up you know leaving and you have no control over it so they you know we said goodbye to them gave them a hug and a kiss and they drove away and um they're somewhere out there so it's hard not thinking more so like yes it's selfish that you know we want them with us i think we would be an awesome you know scenario option for them in terms of you know growing up and all the love and all the people they had in terms of their you know support network but it's also kind of worrisome you're you're reminiscing but you're also thinking when we were on vacation for two weeks you know it's so hot in new jersey there's a heat wave and you know 
their biological mom didn't have a car, so they're walking to the bus stop, they're staying outside in this heat, then I know there was some kind of big storm over here. Like, are they okay? Or are they safe? Or are they, you know, getting the attention they need? Are they being neglected? Are they, you know, it's just like a million things constantly running through your mind and you don't have control of it. So we don't know how they're doing, you know, we don't know what they're doing because that kind of trust was broken with, you know, the case side of it and with the mom misconstruing information and we've not been able to even get a picture of them of how they're doing an update if they're okay and we don't know if they're here or they moved so i mean it, it's difficult it was a year and um it was it was for us it was a year for them it was almost half of their lives they spent with us so we taught the younger one how to walk had both of them how to talk their manners like so much stuff you know we went probably in a few vacations a month we crammed like a whole childhood in terms of trips activities and memories into 11 months so it's i mean obviously we're never going to forget it it's definitely uh still a scar that's open still a wound i don't know if it'll ever close and it's like you know we're doing foster to adopt but i don't know if we can get over this in terms of moving forward with foster to adopt based on how the process went and what we still feel for the boy so that's like kind of my perspective where i'm coming from yeah the grief is something that i've never quite felt before and and that grieving process and i remember feeling slightly guilty you know in the first few days after the boys had left um you know, on social media and, and talking to people and say we were we were grieving and grieving our loss. And I told some people, I said, it feels almost like when somebody dies, um, but worse. And what I mean by that is, you know, we had lost Roman's grandfather earlier this year and that really shook our family. And that was something terrible that anybody experiences. But and they that, also, I think, uh, helped us through it. Yeah, they having the boys with us helped that. They they helped all of our tough situations. But you know, with his grandfather, when he passed, when somebody passes away, you know that they're in a better place, and you know that they're you know no longer in pain, or you know that you don't have to worry you are grieving their loss but there's not that worry and that sickness that you feel every day and that pit in your stomach and just like roman said you know i mean i'll walk through the grocery store and see their favorite food and that panic sets in are they eating enough um when it rains <laughs> when it's hot outside are they okay? Do they have the right clothes? Are they on the bus or at home? Or did they get caught in the middle of this? You know, are they warm enough at night? Are they getting to school safe when they're walking across these major roads? You know, when we've seen mom crossing major roads with her head down and her cell phone and this two and three year old are running across the street by themselves. And those are the things that we are grieving the loss of our babies. But scared to death every day that they are not getting what they need in terms of just safety and development and and health wise and you know forget the Paw Patrol toys and the things that they want like that I mean those are just wants but the things that these these kids need um, 
you know, we fear that they're just not getting. And I think that's the hardest part. Um, I mean, I don't sleep anymore. I sleep maybe two hours a night and I constantly roll over and check my phone and just think, okay, maybe, you know, maybe she'll reach out to me. Maybe mom will reach out to me and she'll need something and she'll confide in me or, I am constantly rolling over thinking that I'm going to see a missed call from DCPNP that these kids are back in the system and they need us. And it's, I mean, it, it eats at you. Um, and it's very tough. So managing that grief is something that we've been trying to do to the best of our ability. I did seek professional help. Um, you know, I went to my doctor and, and told her all of the stress and was put on a you know, was given a short-term prescription to kind of manage that. And again, I felt really guilty and I didn't want to go that route and I didn't want to be chemically dependent. You know, not that there's anything wrong with that for other people, but I didn't want that for me. And and it helped a little bit, but I, I felt like a zombie and I didn't want to not feel anything. I just wanted to feel less hurt, less like my heart was completely ripped out. So we definitely tried to find other ways to manage that grief. So, and one of the ways we did that was by creating an email address for the boys. So again, we have no contact with them right now or with their mother. So again, in a, you know, on a leap of faith, we created an email address for them. And the purpose of it is that if, you know, one day they're back in our care or one day when they're older and, if they have any interest of finding us or if the stars aligned that way, we would like to hand over this email address and the password to the children. And like Roman said, every day we've been writing to the children. Sometimes it's a short email. Sometimes it's a long email. Almost all of them have pictures attached from the previous, you know, year on that day. So it's kind of this loving time capsule for the kids. And we never say anything bad about their mother. We never say anything bad about the system. But we do tell them things like, you know, we reached out to your mom today and, and would have really liked to see you. We, we wish that we could have been able to see you, you know. So we don't want them to ever feel like we're bashing her or against her. But we want them to know how badly we tried to keep that relationship going once they went back. And that's, it's, it's tough. It's really tough writing those every day. It's tough having to see those pictures every day. It's like scraping your knee every day and pouring that, you know, pouring that alcohol on it every day. And it's just that burn and that heartache over and over again every day. And just praying that that phone will ring and, and the kids will come back with you or praying that you get a picture or, you know, that you know, they're okay. So that grieving process is definitely real and alive, but we are managing it the best that we can. And like I said, during our time with them, we did have two other children with us. Um, since the boys have left us, we've taken three other children in. One of them was a six-year-old girl. We took her Friday through a Monday. She was an emergency placement. And then the following weekend, we took a sibling set four and six-year-old boys. They were with us again for um, a long weekend and they actually just came back to us today. So they'll be with us for about two weeks, um, which they were very excited to see us and we were very excited to see them. So 
happy to <laughs> have them back with us and happy to kind of be, you know, getting back into the swing of things in terms of foster care, but we don't know, you know, we just came back from a two week vacation and I guess we're naive to think that we would come back from this vacation rejuvenated mentally and ready to jump back into foster care long term. And, you know, we've discussed holding out for an infant placement and I, I don't know. I don't know if we're really ready to accept a placement long term right now. We're still really hurting and still really broken, but I know that we are willing to keep accepting placements. So it, it's just a matter of what that looks like. If those are emergency placements or respite or, you know, if the situation is right where it ends up being long-term, but we, you know, similar to IVF, we kind of, it's, it's just a wait and see. It, it depends on how we feel at the moment. We know that we want to move forward with these things, but we have to for our sake and for the children's sake too. I certainly don't want to say yes to kids just for the sake of saying yes and, and it not be a good fit for them or for us. So that is where we are at right now in our foster journey. Well, my thing also is still everything reminds us of them and things we did with them if we do it normally again so going to a specific store a specific place but this time for the first time without them it like takes you back to the time when um we did it together so it wasn't necessarily what we did together but we went on vacation mainly uh for the reason of a family reunion to hawaii as my mother-in-law likes to say hawaii <laughs> um and uh we were there for you know almost two weeks and um that's you know that polynesian culture is what the disney movie uh moana was based off so um all the symbols and different things in terms of all the ships all the um like cultural stuff is everywhere and we went to places where it's displayed and showed and the boys uh, favorite movie was Moana they played that thing on rewind several times a day non-stop over and over and over again yeah all the songs so like even like the fish hook has a significance in the culture to give life and stuff then there's like this other symbol um that uh Lindsay got in terms of a necklace and I got the fish hook and yeah that whole trip we enjoyed it I enjoyed it immensely meeting you know uh, family members, spending time with family, um, but also on the back of my mind, like how cool it would be if we were there with the boys and I mean, they would see the culture and they would connect the two because they were both very smart. So they would have been super excited to basically be kind of where like Moana was set. So stuff like that, other activities. So when we do have, you know, we've had these short-term placements, we want to do stuff with them. Eventually we're going to do something that we did with the boys. So like, how are you kind of feeling about that? You know, is, I don't even know if I want to like be doing that because it's like, I don't know, kind of like dishonoring them in a way, but not really because of like that ex first experience was with them. Yeah, you kind of feel like you're cheating on them in a way almost, but then like rewriting their memory too, I think is, what we feel, you know, I mean, the two little boys that we have sleeping upstairs right now and kind of said, what do you want to do tomorrow? And a few of the ideas that popped into our head were the same places that we went with the boys. And, you know, that guilt sets in because you know that these kids would love it and have 
so much fun there, but I don't know if we're ready to see other kids doing the things that our babies were doing. You know, and I, I know it probably sounds silly and, and weird, and but it, like I said, that wound is still just very rough. I mean, it was really hard, actually, the first placement that we had when they came into the house and to be called mom again and to see you know, oh my goodness, like they're using their plates and they're using their toys and they're calling us mom and dad and they're sleeping in their bed. And it's hard to see those things again. And like Roman said, here we are on this amazing two week vacation in Hawaii to just get some clarity and feel better about everything. And a dozen times a day we're saying, oh, the boys would have loved this. The boys would have loved to be here. They would have loved this. And that was, that was tough because they were with us for four days short of a year every single holiday and birthday and celebration and significant event in our life was spent with them. So we're coming up on those one year reunions now of doing things without them. And it is, it is just especially tough. Yeah, I agree. And it, it, we weren't like being selfish in the process when we um, found out that it was moving towards reunification or we saw progress in their biological mom. We try to be there as a support. I think my, our main issue is, you know, some elements of the system that kind of uh, combated that whole uh, bridging the gap, which what they call is trying to develop a relationship with a biological parent or guardian that lost the kids in the first place if they're moving forward to uh, changing their lives and, uh, you know, getting them back to try to be a resource and uh, have that connection. And it, it's kind of sad because... You know, even sitting on Christmas Eve, we took uh, the boy's biological mom out to eat and, you know, she thanked them. She thanked us for taking care of them. You know, she said, you know, we're all family. We're going to be like, you know, family after this. And it's just kind of, it's sad because that was something we were hoping for. And we didn't mind like stepping back and, you know, being called just, you know, Mr. Roman or Miss Lindsay or, or anything the boys wanted to call us that the, their biological mom was comfortable with as long as we could, you know, see them grow up and be there for them and keep them safe. And if they ever needed anything, be there as a support system. In that sense, I kind of feel let down because it could have went a lot differently. Maybe it couldn't have. Maybe that was, you know, their biological mom just trying to move the process along. But it's a lot of what ifs. And I would like to think that, um, if some things transpired with, you know, certain people within the DCPMP kind of side, we could possibly still have them in our lives. But, um, I mean, it's definitely hard still. I mean, it's a tough place to be because you, you flip flop back and forth. I mean, we definitely bridged the gap with, with mom pretty early on in their case. You know, even one of the times when the, the older one had needed uh, a minor surgery and while we do need mom's consent for that we were not obligated at all to tell mom when that surgery was or even have her there that was something that we reached out and invited her to um, because obviously you know she wanted to be there and, and we didn't want to take that away from her we never wanted her to feel punished or excluded from these things um, and during that surgery is when she had met my mom face to face and had FaceTimed with my stepdad face to face and her and my mom had exchanged numbers. And so they even had that relationship to the point when the kids would had started their overnight visits with her, she would text my mom and say, yeah, you know, the, 
kids are saying they miss grandma, they miss grandma. So they would talk frequently. So it it's not the loss is greater than just us losing them. It's on their end too. You know, they lost the people that they called mama and daddy. They lost, oh goodness, two, three, four sets of grandparents and all these aunts and uncles, you know, our aunts and uncles and our siblings and everybody that I work with currently, they called an auntie and an uncle. I mean, they coming to us, all they had was a mom. They didn't have any extended family. You know, mom had moved a lot with them. And while mom had family, they were out of the picture, out of the state. So they went from having, you know, this family unit of three people, the two of them and their mom, and they gained this entire family, this entire world of people that loved and cared for them. And they lost everybody. And the same things that we are experiencing, those same hurt feelings, a lot of our family members are too. You know, my mom and stepdad, of, of all of the friends and family that we have, probably spent the most amount of time with them just because of location, because of where they live. Um, they were the closest proximity to them and they definitely helped us out often with watching them and they treated these babies like they were their own grandchildren. Um, so just as we lost our babies, they lost their grandkids and, and that was very hard for them too. So the loss shook a lot of people. And we look back a lot and think, was there something we could have done differently? Did we push mom too hard? Did we push DCP and P too hard? But at the end of the day, I mean, I just, I remember praying almost every night, just God, please just do whatever is best for these babies. Whatever decision that is, we'll be okay with it. <laughs> and, um, and they're gone. So we have to believe that everything is, is okay. Is as okay as it, you know, can be in it hurts like hell. Um, but we're really trying to be as okay with it as possible for that, that one reason. Well, even like the first time we met the mom, like we thought it would be nice because at that point we've already went to Disney World. We went to visit Lindsay's, you know, aunt in Florida. We took them to the beach. We took them to aquariums, Six Flags, safaris, like touch, like please touch museums and stuff like that. So we had hundreds of pictures that we just handed her basically for all these experiences and that time gap she missed that we didn't necessarily have to do. And it kind of started that kind of um, relationship or like being on good terms. But I mean, I mean, going into it, we, we, we knew things like that could happen. It's just tough because you put in almost a year and you feel so great in these kids because I mean, it was basically an instant family. You just have to figure it out. I think we figured it out quickly and well. They had discipline, they behaved, they were, they were awesome kids. They flew, they were the best kids in the plane. You had some savage kids in there. They were like, <laughs> pretty calm for their first plane experience less scared i hate flying less scared than me they kept me calm and um i don't know i mean that's just life like i would i hope things work out i wanted things to work out in the first place but you know we said even when we went on vacation if something ever happened that they ended up in the system again and if we're the first family that's called because we had that time with them regardless of where we're at together or if I'm on a business trip or we're, you know, in Australia on vacation, one of us or both of us are flying back direct regardless of what we have to spend. 
Yeah, we had that conversation safe. going into vacation. We said, watch, we're going to make it all the way to Hawaii and we're going to get a phone call that <laughs> these kids are back in the system and, you know, came to terms that we were going to have to catch an immediate flight home from Hawaii. But at that point, I mean, we don't care. We would do, do anything if that situation ever arose. So, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, my overall opinion or feeling about foster care and I think you know the the thing that I tell everybody is if I knew prior to getting involved if I knew then what I know now about foster care and the system and the experience and the heartbreak and the feelings I would have never gotten involved in foster care I would have never gone through with it I would have never became a foster parent had I known any of that prior but now that I know all of that, especially, you know, what happens with these children and all of that, um, I don't think I can ever stop <laughs> being a foster parent. So I know that we need to take some breaks. I know that we aren't ready, you know, at this very moment in time to move forward with the permanent placement. Um, and that could change tomorrow, but <laughs> as of this very moment, you know, we're not ready to move forward with a permanent placement, but. I know that because of everything that we know about the system and, and the process, I don't know that we can ever stop. So we, you know, look at each other a lot and say, you know, one day, one day IVF is going to work for us and we're going to end up with this IVF success story and have these twin babies and we're going to have foster kids and we're going to adopt from the foster system and we're going to have five, six, seven kids running around and all of the pain and agony and money and everything was all worth it and we will finally have our big happy family but goodness gracious has it been an interesting path when when we finally get there it will have been an interesting path for sure yeah maybe at that point it'll be a uh, lifetime movie i don't know it might be <laughs> But I mean, the other element is just the time. So you're doing all these things with the kids and they're filling these blocks of time in your life and you have a schedule and a routine. So stuff like uh, when obviously Lindsay was at work or closed uh, in terms of retail, like late at night, I would be the one after work picking them up, then going to the park, then feeding them dinner. We're gonna go walk the dog. We would, you know, play so-and-so. We would take a bath and it's just like this regimen that you get into and it becomes, you know, if you do anything uh, several times or a certain amount of times, it becomes a, you know, a habit, bad or good. You know, if, you know, you stop working out and they say if you go like, you know, 60 or 70 consecutive days, you reprogram that habit. So we had to get like unprogrammed from this stuff because like first few days I didn't really know how to act. So like, I think it was a six or seven day. I just, I mean, I'm not big in cardio, but I bought a road bike and the first stage was road like 30 miles so that's helped it's I mean in terms of getting some mental clarity I think the first 10 or 11 days straight we went to the gym together and we just kept working out and doing our thing like this podcast has definitely helped so it fills the time in terms of editing and stuff like that so uh, coming from that perspective it's a lot of like things you have to uh, rearrange so you don't lose your mind. But um, I think that journey, even though it's been a lot, it's still just beginning for us. 
So uh, in terms of advice for the audience, some people may be going through similar things. Can you give some advice or perspective, somebody getting into kind of that fertility journey or thinking about adoption or fostering or any part of that foster care system? So I think that my overall advice, even though it sounds cliche, is just truthfully don't give up. Set goals for yourself. It's it's okay to dream. It's okay to dream big. It's not okay to not go after that dream. Anything is possible. Um, I know that for quite some time, I was afraid of going back to school because I heard, you know, how are you going to be able to afford that? How are you going to be able to do that? And, and sometimes those things can eat at you. All of that negativity can eat at you. So it is okay to dream. It is okay to start over. Things like going back to school in your 30s are tough. Things like becoming a parent to two children in a matter of seconds while working full-time and going to school full-time are tough. But if you truly want something, you just have to go after it. There is no right or wrong path. Things can take you as little or as much time as they need to take you. You set your own pace, but you you have to get there. Um, you know, like Roman said, he took up cardio and, and those 30 miles would have been just as impressive if they took him a while to work up to or right away, because that's that's a goal. That's something that you set out to achieve. But in everything that I've been through, whether it's my retail career or my decision to go back to school or infertility, the foster care process, I have made some amazing people along the way. So my other bit of advice is don't ever be afraid to tell your story. I'm not afraid to tell people that I had no idea what I was doing in retail. I had people take chances on me and I made the best of the situation. I had no idea how to break it to my family that we were having trouble conceiving and I was embarrassed to tell them. But when I did, I got support and love and help. And same thing with the foster process and same thing with going back to school. So never be afraid to share your story because, you know, just like infertility affecting one in eight people, there are so many people around you that are going through the exact same thing as you do. And having that support base and team to reach out to is so helpful because you don't have to bottle those feelings up and those emotions up. And, you know, in this infertility journey, I met this incredible person who, um, you know, had created an anonymous profile on Instagram and was scrolling through hashtags one day and found her and found out she went to the same clinic, you know, through some of her hashtags and have created this amazing relationship with her over the past year, have met her in person. They, goodness, they had one heck of a bumpy road themselves and she is a few days away from giving birth to her amazing baby boy. And she actually just posted something today that really hit home for me. Um, you know, this time last year they experienced a loss and that was very hard, obviously for her and her husband. So, you know, what a difference a year can make, but the bit of advice that she gave today that hit home for me that I, you know, want to kind of share with all of you is that yes, things get better and yes, things take time, but if you look at where you're at today, if you're 
down or depressed or stressed out or things aren't working the way that you wanted them to, you're going to look back at that. It might be a week from now or a day from now or, you know, a month or a year from now, but you're going to look back and say, I thought that that was the worst thing that I was experiencing and, and I got through it. Um, and you will, you'll get through it. It's, it's going to suck <laughs> and it's going to be gritty and tough and uncomfortable, but you will get through it. So just stick through it, believe in yourself, trust the people that you have in your life that are helping you through it and, and have that support system for sure. But don't give up on yourself. Don't ever give up on that dream. You know, it is my dream to become a teacher. I'm not giving up on that dream. It is my dream to be a parent, whether that's biological or a foster parent, which I am, or an adoptive parent. I won't give up on that dream. And I don't care what that path looks like, but it's I, I know that I won't give up on that. So I'm okay with whatever outcome that brings to me. So I think as tough as it may sound, just trying so hard to stay positive through all of it because that's the only thing that'll keep you alive through the process. I agree. And um, it's all the bad things, bad things I think happen to everybody, but they learn from it and they kind of toughen up or, you know, they leave scars, but they heal. So when you get to something more challenging in your life, you have that uh, preparation. So whether it be obviously the uh, loss of our boys to reunification, the loss of my grandfather, you know, the infertility and the miscarriages, different career moves, layoffs, personal relationships, friendships ending, like it, it compounded. I don't know if it gets easier, but um, we, we keep getting through it together. So I appreciate you coming on and uh, I love you. Well, thank you for having me into this part of your world and I love you too. This podcast has been brought to you by Nova Zora Digital. Find out how Nova Zora Digital can help your company grow online. Learn more at NovaZoraDigital.com. Until next time, all you digital savages.